You're listening to the Unlocking Africa podcast. Atlist is a sports news and digital content studio, and we work very closely with top African athletes across the world. My former life, I worked for Google as a business analyst, led their YouTube product for West Africa. Stories are part of our humanity. They're the seeds that fathers pass on to their sons, right? Legacy. If we keep on hearing stories about the hunt from the hunters, would never truly understand the perspective of the lion. And I hate to say I think if people are telling our stories from the outside, they wouldn't pay attention to the things that are important to us. Stay tuned as we bring you inspiring people who are unlocking Africa's economic potential. You're listening to the Unlocking Africa podcast with your host, Tessa Adamu. Welcome to the Unlocking Africa podcast, where we find inspirational people doing inspirational things. Today, we have a special guest. We have Landry Aino, who is CEO and founder of Athlist, which is a digital sports news and content studio that publishes African sports stories that matter. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast, Landry. How are you? I'm doing very well, Tessa. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation because you have a very unique story and a very unique product that I think is extremely important to Africa. So it's great to get going with this conversation. But before we do, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about Lanry Aino? How do I start? Well, I am Nigerian. Um, I think I'll start with that. And I'm currently living in Lagos, Nigeria, and I'm uh, running my second business. The first was Content Garage, which was a production company that uh, helped small brands uh, sort of do like commercial style videos at half the cost of what it was going for. It was a fantastic experience, which I truly enjoyed. And, and that sort of led to my current business, um, Atlas, which I hopefully will tell you more about. In my heart, I'm an entrepreneur. I like uh, solving problems. There's no better place to solve problems than, you know, Nigeria. My former life, I worked for Google as a business analyst, led their YouTube product for West Africa, had a fantastic time. As of the time that I joined Google, I was the second employee here in Lagos. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I remember coming for my interview and I was talking to Ben, my manager, Lola Masha, and I was like, well, where's everybody else? <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is supposed to be Google. Where's everyone else? <laughs> you know, so I was like, where's everybody else? And it was a small cubicle somewhere in Ikoi there. And it was, it almost felt like a five by five room. And Lola was the only person. And Lola was like, you're the second person. Like, if you get through the interview, you know, you're going to be the second person. And, and now it's such a big office and they're doing amazing things. Um, but I think Google for me was a fantastic experience. It sort of gave me the perfect landing that I needed moving back from the U.S. to Nigeria. You know, I like to say that one day you're with the market people trying to figure out, you know, how they use Google products. And the next day you're, you're having a meeting and advising the vice president, you know, so it sort of gave you best of both worlds. And I think really set me on a path, the entrepreneurship path that I'm on right now. Family is a huge part of my life. I'm married. I have an amazing wife and two amazing boys. And they're the cornerstone of my life. Uh, but I also grew up in a house of two amazing parents. Both my parents are professors. Uh, my dad is a professor of soil physics. My mom a professor of sociology. 
So I sort of grew up in a very strict academic household, was reading encyclopedias as early as three or four. You know, that was the thing. You never came second. <laughs> you never came second in my house. You, you know, like, never carry last. You never carry last to my house. I mean, that thing was was for real. My dad would be like, who came first? And do they have two heads? <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, so that's me in a nutshell. I think um, I'm very optimistic about Africa, about Nigeria. I know we're going through hard times right now, but I think we have a generation of people who understand problem solving and who've embraced problem solving with that mindset. You know, we'll be able to transform the continent in a couple of decades from now. Let me put it that way. But yeah, so that's me. That's Lara Hino in a nutshell. So it's where I'm from. It's what I do. And it's the people that surround me. Brilliant, brilliant. You've given us a great introduction about your early days, personal life, working at Google and the importance of that job to what you do now. So if you've ever listened to the podcast, I always like to start from the beginning. You are the CEO and founder of Aflist. Can you tell us a bit more about the company in terms of when and why you founded it and what you hope to achieve through Aflist? Atlist is what I call a sports news and digital content studio. And we work very closely with top African athletes across the world uh, to develop and share African stories that matter to their fans. Yes. Um, and the reason why I started Atlas, um, it really started, and you know, I like to be humble about this, but it really started from my Google days. It started as an idea that I didn't know what I was going to do with the idea, but I, I remember that I had the idea. Um, and I believe it was 2014, if I'm not mistaken. I was part of a, a team behind the product launch of Google Plus, if anyone can remember that. Yes. Uh, so it was Google's attempt at trying its hands on social media. And I was part of that team, working very closely with Google's marketing team, but I was in the business team. And part of my work was to help sort of onboard celebrities, right? And I remember meeting J.J. Okocha and Kanu Wanko for the first time. Amazing. And, and bro, I shut down. Like, <laughs> guys are stars. I, I think most of us would shut down. <laughs> Yo, I shut down. And I can tell you in the process, I met Genevieve Naji, amazing woman, Banky W and, you know, Emaya Baga. You know, so those guys are celebrities in their own right. But when I met J.J. and Kanu, these were heroes that I grew up watching. You know, I had posters of JJ, right, in my room. That was, that was, I drew JJ Okocha <laughs> as, as a kid, you know, in comic Brilliant. books, you know. So I met them, but they never acted like celebrities or so down to earth. It was just perplexing, you know, being around them. And I remember JJ's older brother, Emmanuel. A lot of people don't know Emmanuel, but I like to say Emmanuel is real JJ, but that's a story for another day on Atlas. Uh, but Emmanuel would just say, hey, what are you doing? I says, well, I'm at work. He says, hey, do you have time? I said, well, maybe during my break time. And he was like, well, myself and JJ are hanging out. Let's hang out. Let's have some drinks. And, you know, as a fan, I'll just run there. And I remember hearing stories from JJ, from Kanu, Victor Ekpeba, Taribo West. I never heard before. It was brilliant. Joseph Dosu, the keeper of the Atlanta 96 team. And I was like, I've never read this. You know, and I'm a complete sports fan. You know, I, I listen to Brilla FM. I like uh, Femi and the Gang on, yes. on Nigeria Info. I'm a sports fan, you know. 
You know, I used to be crazy about sports until Barcelona lost to Chelsea a couple of, a few years ago during the Champions League. And I can swear I had heart palpitations. And I said, I can't feel like this ever again. And, but anyways, but a huge sport fan and their stories would just ring out for days in my head. I told myself, I said, if I ever get to, you know, move on from Google, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something about the stories that JJ has told me or Emmanuel, you know, I'll do something about it. You know, and I'll ask them, I'll say, how come you guys never tell the presses? And well, the press never really bothered to ask. We always ask the things that they want, you know, not the things that we want to talk about. And I was like, oh, interesting. You know, and I just wanted to do that. So, you know, after that experience with Content Garage, I said, you know what, it's time to do Atlist. You know, take all that production knowledge, you know, the understanding of digital from Google and build a platform where we can tell stories and figure out how to monetize and figure out how to make it a business. And that's how we started Atlas. And I realized that there's so many other athletes like JJ Okocha who are not telling their stories. You know, I talked to an amazing young lady who is Nigerian-American but plays for the Nigerian team, Tony Payne. When she told me about her story, how her father, a Nigerian immigrant, moved to the U.S., you know, met her mom, you know, and helped them sort of sharpen their skills as, as girls, you know, playing football. It was just brilliant. I've talked to Kanu Wanko. I've talked to Terrible West, Terrible West's abusive father who wanted him to be a mechanic because his neighbor's son was a very, very successful mechanic, right? Okay. So he wanted his son to be. And Terrible said, I don't want to do that. As a matter of fact, his mom says, I know, let him go to school. And his father was so mad that how dare you, woman, talk to me like that and kick Terrible West and his mom out of the house. You know, 3 a.m. one night, walking through, you know, he grew up in, in the creeks, right, in, yes. in Niger Delta, walking through the creeks and trying to make it to, like, to the next um, boat pickup, you know. Um, and he was, I don't know, maybe six, seven, you know. And I was like, I never heard that. And I was like, yeah, that's my story. I met a lady... Um, I'm trying to remember her last name, but her first name is Shade. And she is one of the most successful Paralympians in Nigeria. She's won gold, silver, you know, maybe two or three times. And she's a power lifter, right? You know, there's a story that we're doing with her that's coming out on Life and Times, maybe in about a month. She and her husband, you know, they can't use their lower extremities, right? So it's tough, you know, husband and wife having, you know, having those kind of complications, but I was like, how do you get to the stadium? It takes you almost three, four hours to get to the stadium. Yes, yes, <laughs> right? yes. And they come every weekend, you know, and they were like, no, this is what we're passionate about. So we, you know, our entire family sort of built around this. So we had an opportunity to go visit them, right? And it's not a pleasant sight in terms of people that, you know, would have to use wheelchairs to sort of move around, but the road around their house is far from being tarred. So there are a lot of stories. There are sad stories. There are happy stories, you know, that we want to tell. And um, and I think every day when I wake up and, you know, I believe the same for my team, that's what motivates us. That's what we're passionate about. And it's because of these people that we meet. So you mentioned how meeting JJ Akacho and Kanu shaped what you do in terms of telling stories of African athletes. From your perspective or point of view, why are stories important? Why is it important for Africa to tell its own story? And what are the risks of allowing others to tell our story? Stories are human. Stories are part of our humanity. They're the seeds that fathers pass on to their sons, right? Legacy. Without stories, we're not complete. 
the stories that I'm fascinated about right now, you know, as a middle-aged man, <laughs> are stories about my grandfather. So my mom one day just said, oh, you're just like your grandfather or dad. I was like, what? I said he was bald. I was like, ah, super bald. <laughs> and I'm fascinated. I'm like, how was he? You know, I should say, oh, he was a great businessman. He owned farms. He was very pleasant. He was a nice man. You know, they liked him in the village, you know, and those stories fascinate me. Without stories, we're, we're not connected to our past. And if we're not connected to our past, we would make mistakes that we shouldn't make, right? Um, and, and that's why I think stories are very important. Um, we have to tell stories. We have to share stories. Um, unfortunately, and, and this is something I'm not 100% sure about, you know, because historically, Africans told stories. Yes. Very recently, and, and recently meaning in the last hundred years, it just didn't matter that much to us. And the reason why I say this is I'm a huge fan of, of African history. At the moment, I'm just uh, completely immersed in the history of the Dogen people from Mali, Mansa, Musa, yes. you know, like those things you know, just excite me. Now that I saw, you know, that Marvel is doing something with the uh, women of Dahomey, yes. I'm like, wow. I'm like, I know that story. You know, I, I went to Benin City the other time and, you know, I was doing some production work um, for a company here in Lagos called Mixta Africa. And this was my content garage uh, days. And, you know, I just got immersed in, you know, in the story of the Benin Kings and their history and the museums. And I was like, my God, you know, if you think Dahomey is a huge story, you have to check out the Bini people. And as a Yoruba guy that shares, you know, history with the Bini people, yes. you know, Ojibwa and all that, it was interesting to sort of see the similarities and the differences between how we sort of perceive the history of our people, the differences and sort of like similarities. Without stories, we're not, we can't be human. You know, we can't be completely human. And I think that Africans have to embrace storytelling and it's important. Now, you ask, what's the risk of other people telling our stories? Yes. <laughs> I, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's like uh, the line that says, if we keep on hearing stories about, you know, the hunt, right, from the hunters, would never truly understand, you know, um, the perspective of, of, of the lion. And I'm not, I, I sort of paraphrase, but there's a way to say it. We need to tell our stories from our perspective. And not necessarily because they are better stories. I just feel like it's important because it's our perspective. Our perspective is important. And I see it all the time. You know, uh, we're working on a few projects right now that has a hybrid team of, you know, Americans as well as Nigerians. And it's interesting to see how some of the best ideas rise to the top between the teams, right? But it's interesting to also see the perspectives, right? Especially with the African teams, what is important to them might not be what is important to the American side of the team, if you understand what I mean. And it could be the smallest thing. It could be a greeting. It could be how it's said, how it's done. And I think that that's critical, you know. And I hate to say it, I think if people are telling our stories from the outside, they wouldn't pay attention to the things that are important to us. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. J.J. Okocha. Right. And I'm sort of giving I'm giving this away. <laughs> Please do. So JJ Okocha, there's a chant at the Bolton Stadium. The fans say JJ, he's so good. They had to name him twice. But I found out from a Nigerian perspective, he was so good. They had to name him twice. 
it's not even the true story of JJ's name. <laughs> the true story of JJ's name is that JJ had two older brothers, right? And the eldest brother, his name is James Okocha. James JJ Okocha. And he was the one that literally tore the door down <laughs> to the other brothers playing football because he was the one that sort of faced the brunt, you know, and the anger of his dad. Um, I believe worked for the railway construction, if I'm not mistaken, in the mid 50s and 60s, if I'm not mistaken. And James was sort of like a terror, right? He was, he was, everyone knew James because James would go to your, you go to the neighbor's house, beat the neighbor's son and their cousins and everything, right? That was James <laughs> Okocha. And everybody sort of knew him and he was going to play football and everything. And JJ was a tiny, tiny boy, right? And James was so popular that, uh, one day he had bitten up two boys who had sort of attacked him. And they were like, ah, today, James, you're going to have it. Me and my brother are going to take you down. And these were teenage boys, right? And James was just a terror. He bit two of them. And when they went home and they were crying to uh, to their dad, their dad was like, wait, why are both of you crying? Who beat you? Someone beat me in my school. Eh, who? James or Kocha? Ah, who beat you? Uh, somebody beat me in my school too. The same person beat you. Yes, James Okocha. Ah, you know, and James then, his, his nickname was Jay. They just call him Jay. You know, that was short for James um, then. So he said, Jay beat you. Jay beat you. That's how JJ actually started. So, so it, it was James JJ Okocha, right? <laughs> right? The guy was so powerful, which was quite similar to his younger brother's chant, right? So good they named it twice. This guy was so deadly. <laughs> they named him twice. <laughs> they named him twice. You know, so it was James JJ Okocha. And there's an African thing about, about nicknames, right? Yes. And again, this is where the context comes. So if I had a senior brother whose name was Thunder, ah, Thunder, that guy's name is Thunder. Everybody, every single boy in that family would be nicknamed Thunder. It happened a lot. Like I yes. had people that were growing up with, you know, who played football. Their older brother was like, ah, Gadesh. The younger brothers are Gadesh. The younger, younger brother is Gadesh. You know, everybody in that family is Gadesh. And that's sort of how the name trickled down to JJ. But the real JJ was actually Manuel. You know, if you go through the history of Nigerian football, Emmanuel was the legend, right? He played for Enugu Rangers. Yes. If you go to Enugu Rangers and you talk about Austin JJ, they're like, who the hell is that? Emmanuel was JJ. Emmanuel was the number 10, right? As a matter of fact, Emmanuel was so dominant that when he now realized that his brother was playing football, he went to Enugu Rangers and said, you know what? If you guys don't sign my brother, I'm going to leave Rangers. And that's how JJ played for Rangers for six months before he went to uh, to went to Germany. Oh, wow, yes. His story about going to Germany is another, another story for another... <laughs> because he literally... JJ for him was living in the shadow of his brother, right? His brother was successful, was a fantastic local league player. You know, he was making money, had a car, I think he bought a house. You know, and this was the 80s. This was the golden days of, of the local league. Um, so JJ was comfortable, you know? His brother was there. And his brother had two invitations to play in Galatasaray, and another second division club in Germany. And JJ asked him, he says, hey, are you going to go for the two um, trials? I was like, nah, I'm not doing the German one. I'll, I'll do the Galatasaray one, you know? And JJ was like, oh, let me, let me, let me see what I can do with this one, right? <laughs> I will stop there because that would, that would cannibalize what we're doing with them. But no JJ wasn't even supposed to be in Germany. It was supposed to be manual. JJ just showed up. Amazing. And, and JJ was supposed to do it as vacation. Just, I'm just going to have fun. 
So his brother calls and says, where are you? He says, well, I'm still in Germany. Why are you not back? Well, they don't want me to leave. Why? Because they're signing me. Signing you? <laughs> what does that mean, signing you? That was not the plan. He says, well, they say if I leave, probably someone who hijacked them, <laughs> hijacked me before I come back. So they don't want me to leave. I'm here now. Amazing. And that's how JJ started. So again, why are stories important? Context, perspective. Stories that the hunters tell are important, but stories that the lion wants to tell also is as important. And from the lion's standpoint, the perspective is always different, right? And it's important that we find a way to embrace both. And Africa just has to embrace, I think, the way we tell our stories. Fundamentally very different. Thank you for sharing those stories. They, that's some amazing insights. I've actually learned a lot myself about JJ Akaja, and I look forward to the release of the contents that you're producing. You touched upon there that stories are who we are and help shape our future. And, you know, Africans have always told stories, but We've never been great at recording and documenting our stories. Absolutely. Have you noticed an increase in Africans in terms of the new generation wanting to tell the African story? Oh, yes. Um, Nollywood is a perfect example. And I can tell you, I have a good friend of mine. His name is Eni Amuro, just an amazing guy. He's in the content space here in Nollywood. And he's a connector, right? He knows everyone and he's such a giver. He connects everybody. And every time I sit down with any, there's always a new project that's going on. There's always a script. There's something, there's something in development. There's, you know, and there's more money also coming into the space, right? Africans are telling their stories like never before. When I was growing up in the 80s and um, early 90s, we had very stereotypical stories, right, on TV. You know, the witch, the mother-in-law, all that stuff. It's changed, right? It's changing now. You know, there's range, there's there are all sorts, there are people trying to do sci-fi, there are people trying to do all sorts of things. You know, there, there are people doing animation. In fact, some of our animations are, are being, or animation stories are being picked up right now by major studios in America. You know, uh, someone just sent me one on Iyanu recently. You know, um, there are all sorts of things going on. People just want to tell amazing stories, right? And, and this generation, there's a renaissance, right? And I think it's also empowered by digital platforms. It probably was harder in the 80s because it was expensive to do. Distribution was limited. But now with platforms, you know, like Roku, Amazon, you know, Netflix, you know, uh, people can literally just even pull up a blog and just start writing things. And you can get a global audience, even for your blog. That, I feel, has encouraged the rise of this generation and their ability and not even just their ability, their just passion for telling stories. And it's going to just get bigger. You know, I think we're just scratching the surface, really. So you've mentioned in terms of how Nollywood demonstrates the emergence of new African storytellers and the role technology has played in making this possible, uh, making it a lot more efficient and effective. I think in Africa, we sometimes don't fully understand or in the past, we haven't fully understood the financial value of owning our story. Yeah. What are some of the hidden values that you've discovered during your journey with Aflist? Tessa, that's an amazing question. And I'll give you an experience that's really opened up my eyes. Brilliant. And I'll sort of tell it in two ways. So I'll start from what I'm currently experiencing. So at the moment, we're developing the five-part docu-series around the Super Eagles. We've been embedded in the team for about five months. Brilliant. We've literally just, you know, follow them everywhere. 
and sort of documented, you know, just the vibe in the team. And at the moment, we're currently doing sort of sit-down interviews, talking heads and things like that. And part of the documentary requires that we get archival footage, right? Uh, so, for example, if I'm talking about Victor Sime, who's this amazing young lad, played for Napoli, just an amazing striker, reminds everybody of the great Rashidi Yakini, such a tenacious but amazing player. And I'm looking for footage on him right now, right, as sort of B-roll. I need highlights on his goals. I need, you know, highlights of him signing Napoli, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Tessa, at the moment, those archives are costing us nothing less than $10,000 a minute. Oh, wow. At the moment. So if I'm going to line up, say, maybe about 200 minutes, and I need about 25% of 200 minutes, in archives, you can guess how much I'll be spending. <laughs> Do you understand? That's 50 minutes by 10000 That's $500,000. So it's so expensive now to even tell our stories, the stories that matter to us. And the reason is because we do not have primary footage. We do not have primary content that we can sort of, you know, um, leverage on. And I think that that's going to be a problem. You know, and that has been the underlining problem to Africans even telling some of their stories. Because, yes, there would be films, but there has to be documentaries. There has to be academic work, right? There has to be things where it's not fiction, it's real, right? And you really want to, you know, sort of dig deep and tell stories. The problem with that is that the primary source of that content is not resident in Africa. So it's going to be expensive. Now, this is the second part of the story. When I was at Google, one of my biggest projects was actually to help digitize NTA, the National Television Authority. Yes. Right. So we had signed agreements. I thought it was fantastic. You know, I just so that, you know, we can also help um, some of your, your listeners understand the kind of stuff that we're doing. There's a YouTube channel today on YouTube called Oputa Panel. So if you go on YouTube and you type in Oputa Panel, you'd find the channel. That was one of the first fruits of the deal that we had with NTA in terms of nation healing and, and things like that. One of the things that shocked me with the NTA was, I was like, this is fantastic. We'll put that panel. I need more. Let's get more online. You know, let's get Africans and diaspora excited about the content and everything. I was like, give me more. Um, what do I want? What do I want? What do I want? Give me something on, okay, can you give me all the speeches on the presidents, right? From 1960. I know the world will love that. You know, as a matter of fact, I love Tafar Balin. Just the little clips that, I, you know, I, I, I've seen. Like, this guy was a brilliant um, orator. Can we get some stuff from Tafar Balin? We're like, uh, no, we don't have that. Why don't you have it? Uh, we lost our archives. What? Oh, wow. I don't understand. What do you mean you lost your archives? I don't say this publicly, but I, I think I have to say it on the podcast. We said our archives were in a particular storage. And we had a high-level transfer from Abuja to Lagos. I believe he was a director, but he had moved to Lagos and there was no office for him. So I was like, okay, great. So what happened? Um, so we had to clear out the storage room and we had to convert it to an office. I was like, yeah, great. So you just moved the archive somewhere else. Uh, no, we left it in the rain. Dude, that's the reality of Nigeria. You left the archives in the rain. Speeches of presidents, right? Speeches. And I'm talking about some of those speeches. Remember our takeover speeches? Yes. Abacha? Yes. We've taken over. There's a new government in town. The uh, federal parastatus dissolved. This dissolved. This dissolved. You know, whether you like it or it's history, right? Whether yes, you history. like a man or not. Yeah, exactly what I was going to say. Where are those speeches? 
where are, you know, where structural adjustment program, you know, IBB's declaration, um, all those different things, deals with IMF in the 80s. These things were on TV. And if you like the sensational, where is the video of the late great Idahosa, you know, sitting down in NTA Bini and asking and challenging the witches, the witches conference to hold in Bini or they'll die, you know, things <laughs> like that. Those were things I remember watching as a kid growing up in the 80s, right? Even, you know, the firing of uh, Anini and this guy's our barbage on a Sunday afternoon. I remember watching it, you know, coming back from church. I think it was 86 or 87 when I was a child. All I'm just saying is that is our history and we haven't protected it and we haven't guarded it and we've lost it. Um, as a result, we're now paying through our nose to tell our own stories because we don't have the primary source anymore. Right. Um, but I hope that this is a lesson for our generation to understand how important documenting our stories are. Right. So that generations, you know, way after us don't have to go through what we've gone through. But that's the price that we have to pay now. And it's very unfortunate. You shared some specific insight that actually brings memories back to myself. Some Nigerian history, which I've probably forgotten about. At the beginning there, you mentioned in terms of the prohibitive cost of licensing content whilst making the Super Ego documentary and also touched upon that we don't fully appreciate or respect the value of protecting and documenting content. Yeah. What we were speaking about in terms of the value of content. Aflist is a private company. You're in the business of making content, which is based around athletes, which hopefully you will make a profit from. What are some of the ways that as a company in terms of the niche area or sector that you specialize in, what are some of the ways that you're finding effective in monetizing what you do? Uh, thank you, Tessa. I mean, amazing question. Um, <laughs> now I'm just thinking back and you know some days as an entrepreneur you're like oh man <sighs> <laughs> the, the struggles of an entrepreneur <laughs> am I supposed to be doing this or should I just go back to Google <laughs> yeah, like, what, uh, what am I doing you know but I think why this question is important for me is it almost feels like vindication and this is how I answer it the business that we're in is is a business of IP yes. and you have to understand that right Yes, yeah, stories are great and it's good to tell stories, but, you know, you have to sort of approach it from IP. So most of the projects that we're doing, right, they make IP sense to us. It's very important. And when you think about IP, you're, you're just not thinking about the story as, oh, this is a good to tell. No, it's about it's a good to tell. There's an audience for it. But how does this product keep on making money for me for the next 15 years? Right. And that's very critical to the choices that we make. Right. And once we can sort of settle the balance between this is great culturally and for the culture, and it's also good for the sustainance of our business, then it's a no brainer that we sort of do it. Right. Um, but because of my background in Google, I know that there are multiple ways by which you can monetize IP, that you can monetize content. Right. Um, YouTube is my all favorite. Right. And that's why even though we have audio projects like Special Delivery, which is a podcast, because of how we think about IP, we actually put cameras on the podcast. So we are monetizing that particular product, not just as audio, but we are also monetizing it as video. Right. So that's sort of how we think about it. Right. 
But because of the limitations of platforms like YouTube, you have limitations on the size of project that you can do and place on YouTube, right? You have budget restrictions. And for us, we've realized that the sweet spot is between $25,000 and $50,000, right? So all the projects that we're moving to YouTube, right, or that we're developing for YouTube, none of them would cross that threshold. And what I mean by that is that I developed the entire season on that sort of price point. So Special Delivery is 18 episodes of a podcast that we just currently launched with the amazing Imano Babayaro, who played at Chelsea. The third episode is coming out today. Uh, we've already released two episodes, one with Sunday Olisi, another with the great John Fashion. Again, the production value is high, but we found a way to keep the price point low so that it's easy for us to sort of get our money back, you know, at least get our cost back. And that this content can live on and breathe on YouTube, right? So again, it's, it's sort of like a fine dance between, yes, I want to do it, but what's the price point? And do I have the right platform to sort of help me monetize that over a certain period? But there are also pieces like Chasing Glory, which is a documentary series, which, you know, just by the archives alone is $300,000 I paying for the archives alone. Wow. Now you're wondering, like, where do I put that? Right. And how do I structure that? I want to tell that story, but how does it make business sense? And again, this is where we sort of approach, you know, the bigger boys, right? The Netflixes, the Amazons, who we're currently talking to, saying, hey, this is what we're trying to do. And we found a way to really keep it within the 500 to like maybe 650 price point, hoping that those platforms over time can help us sort of generate that kind of revenue just based on licensing fee. It's a tricky balance. Um, now, there are a lot of my friends who are saying, hey, Larry, why don't you just create your own platform and monetize the content? And I think that's a completely different animal. As an African company, you cannot bite too much. You want to pace yourself and you want to show credibility first. You might not have that luxury uh, just because capital is limited for Africans, you know, and that's the truth. It's not where it was two years ago. It's definitely climate is trending up. But still limited. So what you want to do is that you want to put a lot of value in your credibility. The little that I have, this is what I've done. Then hopefully you can find the right partners to help you build this wider dream. Just to summarize what I'm saying, we've approached storytelling and we've approached the business of storytelling first from an IP, understanding the IP, you know, which is driving our media. And we hope that as we get more successful with the media side of our business, then we can sort of manifest the technology, right? Uh, which is platforms, subscription models, things like that, um, that I think is the way forward. Uh, but at this point, we're just leveraging what is in the ecosystem, what is available for us, you know, what is low-hanging fruit for us to use. Fantastic. So you've discussed the importance of IP and the multiple ways you can monetize IP. You also touched earlier on in terms of African sporting stars like JJ Okocha. Do you believe that African athletes fully utilize or leverage their IP? And if not, how can they do a better job in doing so? Hell no, they're grossly underpriced. Um, they lack an understanding of their own value. And I say this with all humility, without giving away too much. I've been involved in negotiation deals for some of those athletes where by virtue of us just coming in, we 10X the value of the deal. Wow. Oh, so, yeah. And I'll give a few examples. Um, 
I got a call once uh, from one of the athletes and he was like, oh, Larry, I just wanted to run this by you. It doesn't feel good, but, you know, I can't really put a finger on it. So there's this company from Europe that's trying to do a documentary on on the story here. And they want me to sort of be a talking head, blah, blah, blah. And they're paying me $5,000. And a story where he's a very critical part of the entire story, right? I said, that's not right. I said, do you mind us stepping in, you know, just to help, right? It's kind of the value that we provide also, you know. Um, the best way I put is NIL, right? Uh, name, image, and likeness. I'm like, no, that's that's not right. Like, what exactly do they want you to do? And, you know, we sort of looked through the contract and I was like, no, the value of this has to be 10x. You know, if you want him to do it, at least you should be talking $50,000, right? Because we understand the value of what you're trying to do. So not 5000 it has to be fifty, at least. Just And, and 50 is baseline, right? Like, oh, you know, I, I really want the project. I like the project. I want it to go. Let's not stifle each other. Give him 50000 But beyond that, you have to give him some back end. You have to give him this. You have to give him that. You have to give him this. You know, we negotiated for about three months. And and it happened. Brilliant. And he was completely shocked. He said, I couldn't believe it. I was like, yeah. I said, that's your value. And I was trying to explain, I think one of the things that Atlas is trying to do is that media is it's not a way to communicate who you are anymore. It's not just a channel to say, oh, you know, I'm married and I have two kids and I really love them. No, no, it's not just that. It is that, but it's beyond communication. It's a product. Yes. It's a product. It's like real estate. Right? It's like media right now can be monetized, right? And I tell people this all the time, right? LeBron James was not a billionaire until he started his media empire. Interesting. Right? If you took his endorsements, and it's true, like, go go research, right? You take his endorsements, you take his Nike do, you take everything. And, I mean, this guy's an amazing, amazing man. Just a, a template for everyone, right? Do you get Not just in the U.S., a template for every athlete. The way he's conducted himself, the way he's conducted his business, his brand, Right. LeBron James today is, if I'm not mistaken, between 900 mil and a billion. I think he's crossed the billion mark. Yeah, I think it's just recently crossed the billion. Right. Yes. Just recently. But when you look at the breakdown of his valuation, a lot of it has to do with his media empire. The value of the stories that he's telling, the value of that company, right? The value of all the other projects that he's doing beyond just playing basketball. And this is conversations I have with like a JJ or I have with athletes out there and all that. Your value is beyond you just using media as a way to communicate who you are, right? Yourself, your image, your likeness, your name is value. And you have to be able to figure out how to monetize it. And part of monetizing it is putting a stamp on stories that you are interested in. And JJ is a very private guy, right? He would hardly even want to talk about himself, right? He's such a humble, humble guy. Like, you, you know, oh, no, I don't want to talk about myself, right? You can talk about things you're interested in. You can talk about anything. There are all sorts of stories, Tessa. Someone just told me a story about human trafficking. Yes. Such a huge problem. There's a huge human trafficking aspect to the female gender, right? And you probably have heard about the Edo stories and yes. young girls living in Edo state and going to Italy. You wouldn't believe it, but there's an almost bigger human trafficking story for boys who are playing sports. I'm telling you. Very true. 
I'm telling you, and I just recently stumbled on um, Francis Ngannou's story, the MMA guy who who had to cross the Sahara Desert to get to Spain. But they're amazing stories that you don't have to put the spotlight on yourself if you're not comfortable, but you can put the spotlight on other things that you feel very strongly about. And there's value in that. These are the kind of things that we're communicating as a company to some of our athletes, our partners, people that we're in business with. One other story that I'm passionate about is just the rise of the immigrant population and a generation of Nigerians and Ghanaians and Kenyans and Zimbabweans right now in the U.S. and in the U.K. who have gotten to the stage where, and I saw a lot of them in, you know, in college in, in the U.S. in Northeastern, where I remember a kid who introduced himself. He said, my name is Wally. I'm from Chicago. But my parents are from Nigeria. As a Nigerian, I found it very shocking. I was like, okay, <laughs> whoa. You know, like, it's just, you know, but but I understood it. He, he doesn't know Nigeria. He's from Chicago, for real. And his parents are Nigerians. But you now have a generation of those guys now and girls who are saying that, yes, I am from Chicago, but I love my music. I love the Nigerian music. I love Burner Boy. I love Wizkid. I love the vibe. I love that Nigerian or the Carrie last thing. I don't know how to say it. I don't know how to say it, but that thing is in me, right? Um, I want to go to Lagos on vacation. I want to party. I want to, I heard there's a lot of technology going on. There's a new generation of Nigerians who were born abroad, who are saying, who are having to make a decision between queen or countries, how I put it, right? Yes. <laughs> so, Yes. You know, um, and, and we want to tell those stories, right? Olaino, amazing guy who plays for the national team, plays for Torino in Italy, uh, but also plays for the national team, Nigerian national team. Amazing guy, just a great guy, plays great football. You know, I think he plays our right back. He's playing for Nigeria. Calvin Bassi could play for Italy and England and Nigeria, so three countries, right? He's played for Nigeria. But there are people like Tam Abraham, who is Nigerian, that is from Bielsa. Right. But he's English and he's playing for the English national team. There's also value in that. There's also value in understanding his decision, understanding who he is You are, as an English person or Englishman. Right. In a Nigerian family or a Nigerian household or brought up in a Nigerian household. Right. Um, those are stories that I want to explore. Those are amazing stories that I think, you know, that this generation has embraced and that athletes can put their names behind and sort of create value. I get excited when I talk about this. <laughs> no, we could talk about this all day. I hope I'm not talking too much. <laughs> I'm a big sports fan, but you've you've unpacked quite a lot there in terms of you mentioned the value of IP and also touched on some important things such as the hidden stories, whether it's within sports or outside the sports. And also something that you mentioned there, which I found quite interesting was licensing African content to global streamers. And I know you produce documentaries and the objective of producing those documentaries is to circulate to a wider audience as possible. So what are some of the challenges that you have faced or you think African documentary makers face when trying to license out their content to global streamers such as your Netflix and your Amazons? So I think the first thing is the value that's placed on the content. It's a very tricky point. And I'll use myself as an example, right? So I've invested, I'm not invested, Atlas. <laughs> Atlas is invested and his partners and his investors are investing a whole chunk of money into this documentary called Chasing Glory. Based on the current market value for just content in general, pricing, it's almost counterintuitive 
to sink in that much money to a documentary. And this is why I say this, Tessa. A hundred grand dollars can produce an amazing, <laughs> amazing Nollywood movie. Yes. Maybe about $150,000 today, right? You have an amazing movie. It goes to cinema. You do, you know, about hundred million in the first month, maybe, in cinema in Nigeria. Well, that's a good movie. Right, maybe in the first two months, and that's a good movie. So, if you're not really invested in doing this sort of documentary, this genre, if you're not really invested, why should I wait? First of all, why should I invest three hundred fifty thousand dollars in archives when I can create three movies with that? <laughs> three Nigerian movies, you know, about a witch, uh, a crazy mother-in-law, and and someone who's stolen your money, right? You, <laughs> right, and people would watch it. You know, so for us, we're now at a stage where do we go by what the market is saying, which is always a good thing to do, or do we go where there's no path and we create a trail, right? Um, there's, there's a saying like that, right? No one has walked this path. We're going to do it and we're going to create an opportunity, not just for ourselves, but everybody else who's, who's coming behind us. But it's going to be tough. And sometimes that's the challenge. So the platforms would come. And we'll say that this is what your market is telling us that we should price your content. And even though you've put in all this money and you've paid $350,000 in archives, I'm sorry, we cannot give you more than 200 k for a two-year license in deal. I'm not saying that that's what they are giving us, but that's what we're hearing, right? For other projects, not ours, but <laughs> that's not what I mean. So you're like, wait, 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 no, but I put in all this effort, I put in all... That's what the market is saying. And the reason why I bring this up is that based on all those platforms, indirectly, they're telling you what to do, what stories to tell, what films to create, because again, they're the ones paying for it, right? And sometimes they come and they say, our platforms want this. Netflix, I think now is saying that, oh, we want, um, you know, we want content, maybe a scripted content that speaks to a male audience, you know, between 35 and and you can't blame them because that's what their metrics are saying, right? Remember, I worked at Google, so I totally understand how these things work, right? So, so that's what the metrics is saying, right? So they go out there and they just get all their business guys out there. That's what we want. And that's what they sort of confine the market to doing. And as a result, it's almost impossible for you to sort of go against the grain and say, well, this is what I want to tell. Because it'll be like, good luck with that. No one's going to pick it up, right? So that's the challenge. But I feel like we need to start to find the balance. And like I said, we need to start to, you know, find ways of sort of breaking the mold. And I think we're doing it with what we call our 25K to 50K price point. I'm telling stories that I want to tell. And based on those stories, I'm using YouTube's analytics to figure out how to expand that conversation. So today, if you go on our YouTube channel, we have a short series called Film Room. And it's all about you know, the eggheads in African sports. Yeah. You know, guys who are talking about strategy, who are talking about how they think about the Nigerian philosophy around football. And we want to do this across multiple sports. There are a lot of people I've been inspired by. There's a young uh, young gentleman by the name of um, Coyote Yaya, behind the scenes kind of guy. Coyote Yaya is the coach of Ace Brume. Ace Brume is a young lady who's been doing long jump for the last decade. And she's literally unbeatable. She's always top three. Right. Um, I was at a training once um, in, you know, I, I took cameras to University of Benin to watch Kyrie and, and AC train. And in training, this girl was like clocking seven, um, seven meters, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> Easy, you know, um, 
just an amazing girl, disciplined. Kyrie is behind her. He's been training her for the longest time. When Kyrie talks about uh, strength and conditioning, you know, like what textbook are you guys using? Like the amazing Africans, the amazing Nigerians behind the scenes doing amazing things. And we want to put the spotlight on them. And that's what Film Room is all about. It's about the guys who are designing the play, the guys who are designing strategy, right? The guys who you never get to see. Right, but who've done amazing work in football, in, in track and field, and, and all that. If we went to Netflix to say that, oh, we want to do this, I'm not sure they'll be super excited about it because like, what's that? But it's our responsibility to say, hey, Netflix, we've run it already on YouTube. And this is the kind of audience retention that we're getting. We put out a content for 20 minutes and we have an audience retention of about 55%. That's unheard of on YouTube. Right. We put out the podcast on Sunday Olise and we had comments come in within YouTube saying that I've never watched a YouTube video for an hour. This is my first. That immediately starts to tell us that, okay, there's something good that we're doing here. How do we improve it? And how do we now take the learnings from this and create slightly more expensive content for slightly more prominent platforms? Right. So for us, it's it's sort of like a science, right? Yes, the market might not want it, right, today, but they will want it tomorrow. And it's our job to help the market understand why they need it. My dad always says that when you go to the market, right, or if you're selling goods and the customers don't want it, don't, don't be mad at the customer. Be mad at yourself. Be mad at yourself for being a horrible salesman. Right? <laughs> so it's your job. The onus is on you, right? Yeah. If, if the customer is not buying it, it's not the customer's problem. It's your problem, yeah. you know? You know, so go sharpen your sales skills, you know, go go figure out the product, you know, and, and, and make sure that when next the customer comes that he buys, you know. There is that sales saying or quote in terms of don't focus on the customer, focus on the seller. <laughs> you know, the platforms, I think it's early days. I personally think that, you know, our products are grossly underpriced. Um, but again, it's really just market forces, right? If it could go for a higher value, it would go for a higher value. Um, and we have to find ways by which we can make more money from our works, right? But I still feel like it's early days. So it's nothing to be mad about. Like I said, focus on the seller, yes. you know, um, develop better product. Like come back to Netflix with metrics, you know, say, so where's this from? Oh, from my YouTube, we, we piloted a few things and this is what we see. This is what we know. Use NFTs. You know, why does Amazon have to pick your content? Well, because we have 100,000 people that just picked up our NFTs. You know, that's how I think about it, right? So focus on the seller, right? And the customer would buy. Um, So I I still feel like we're in early days, you know, you know, and I'm just, uh, again, thinking about your question, make sure that I've done it justice. No, no, you've done fantastic (laughs) justice. I mean, something you mentioned, which is quite critical there, about walking the path that has never been walked and why it's challenging licensing documentaries to global streamers and how we can learn from those challenges, when most people think of making documentaries or films within Africa, they don't really consider, I guess, what you would probably describe as the value chain or the ecosystem that is actually required to produce the final quality product. How have you gone about building your own ecosystem for Aflist? It's been a tough one. The reason is... A sports as we know it is dominated by live sports and live sports is foreign. And that's where we're playing, right? If you're playing in the sports space. Uh, so 90% of what we consume today in Africa is, you know, it's like the EPL, right? So Saturday, Sunday, you're on the EPL, you're watching the, well, 
Bundesliga, you you know, you're watching the the Syria, you know, that's what people are watching. That's what is driving the sport attention today. But we think as a company that there's an opportunity for what we call alt sports, right? Alternative sports, yes. alternative sports content, lifestyle content, you know, um, non-live sports content, you know, that uh, that Africans have just not been introduced to. Um, so that's what we're betting on. So we're building an ecosystem around that. And it's been a gradual process, right? And we're using platforms that we're going to the platforms where the audience is, right? Facebook, um, Instagram, YouTube, right? And we're saying, hey, we're out here. We're trying to do amazing content. You know, you guys support us. And, and it's just that simple. You know, we've gradually just grown our audience. But I think even more importantly, this is my philosophy. I haven't really even focused on the growth yet. I actually feel that we're at the point where we're still trying to figure out what's the product market fit. What do people like? So we've we've thrown a lot of things on the wall to try to figure out which one sticks, right? So we have content that speaks to the eggheads, analytics. We have stuff called Life and Times, which is my test subject for documentary. Oh, so if you've ever seen life, yeah, so that's how I think about it. Can I do a miniature version on YouTube? And can I use the analytics to predict how this would do on a Netflix? Right. That's literally the formula. So life and times for us is almost like it's like a 10 minute spotlight on a particular athlete who tells you a particular story, not the entire story, but a particular story. So we did one on Daniel Amokachi and he talks about how he went broke after his injury, you know, and how he just survived and how he bounced back. Amazing story. Right. Which should be which could be a documentary. Right. But, you know, we couldn't in our minds, we didn't have the funds to sort of build out a, a full blown documentary. But. For a thousand dollars, right, or maybe a little over a thousand dollars, I can actually put out amazing content for ten minutes that I can monetize in two weeks. Do you get what I mean? Yes. And and based on that, I could also figure out what does the audience like about this, or don't they like it at all, right? So YouTube for us is almost like a test site. So another one where we're currently working is something called Case Close. I can't even, I can't even talk about it. <laughs> I talk about it. <laughs> no People are going to jump on it, but we're, we're trying out all sorts of things on YouTube. In fact, there's a book um, publishing deal that we just closed with Asisad of Shoala uh, called Little Zizan, The Golden Timepiece. I'm sure you love this. Um, this is about, you know, story of a young girl who, you know, is bullied by the boys, telling her she can't play football. And she um, she gets a gift from her grandma that allows her to teleport to the past, right? Oh, she goes wow. from to the past and she meets one of the greatest uh, African women leaders, Tatu, Empress Tatu from, from Ethiopia. But, but the way it happens is that she just appears in Tatu's world and it feels normal for Tatu, right? Because Tatu is right, she, the point where she comes in is at the moment where Tatu is trying to convince the men of her kingdom that they need to fight the Italians and they can't sign the, the contract that the Italians had, you know, which is um, amazing history. And I advise people to go, to go read it. It's just an amazing story. So all the men were going to sign this letter, this thing that would make Ethiopia protectorate of the Italians. And Tatu was the only person, only woman that stood up and said, nah, if we do this, we lose our freedom. We lose our way of life. We can't do this. And people are like, but we can't fight. And she says, we're going to fight. And people were like, how do we fight them? They're Italian. Like, this guy's a massive army. And Tatu was like, well, we don't fight them head on. We just cut their water supply, right? And it's an amazing story. So Ziza goes into that moment. And she learns from Tatu, right? She takes three lessons back. And she brings it to her world. 
So it's almost like sci-fi, but it's local, it's African, it's, it's a hybrid. Brilliant. And it's a book that we're hoping that is going to come out. It's planned to come out during Asisat's birthday. So we're working really hard right now. We started the illustration, you know, it's, um, and we're hoping that that book would be the foundation, IP foundation for what we could potentially do in terms of animation, right? You know, so, so that's how we think about it. So the projects have to be able to feed off each other. They have to be able to, we have to create almost like a value chain. So nothing that we create is a standalone. It feeds into something else. That's extremely important. Yeah. We, we create a podcast that is audio, but can feed into video, right? You know, that sort of thing and could help us. So we create short stories that are a spotlight on a particular person's moment, right? But it could potentially feed into a documentary series and maybe biopic, right? So we're constantly looking for projects that allow us, you know, to move across the spectrum. Um, and we, we hope that that's the way to mitigate any kind of failure in, in the space. Yeah, it helps eliminate overproduction, duplication, yeah. waste. Yeah. So you've detailed how you've developed your ecosystem and how it will stand you in good stead for the future. So if you look at, the say, the future of Africa, where do you see Africa or even Nigeria in five years' time from the perspective of us being able to tell the authentic African story? Um, fantastic question. I'm very optimistic about Nigeria. And, um, and all you have to do is just look five years ago. Where were we in terms of our storytelling? Where are we now? is a good indication of where we're going to be in five years. You know, I, I think Nollywood is going to be a force, you know, like never before. Yes. And all you have to look at is music, right? Just the power of Afrobeats and the way it's taking over the world. And this were young guys just 10 years ago. This were young guys. But you think about them right now and they're legends and they're right. Whiskey, David O, Burner Boy, you know, even the ladies, Tiwa Savage, um, you know, Yemi Alade. These guys are creating an entire new space for the music. So you look at where music is going and you know that, you know, film would follow. Yes. Uh, but it would require more investment, uh, more time, more resources. The way I look at film right now is it reminds me of sort of like um, subsistence farming, right? We're using, we're still using our machetes and our holes, you know, but I think there'll be a time where it will become, you know, mechanized farming, where the big, the big boys who come in with the right valuation, with the right financing, you know, with the right skill sets, you know, will take you to the next level. I remember, and I think this is the amazing thing about Nollywood also, it's that there is an internal market as much as there is an external market. Do you, do you get what I mean? Yes. That yes. people are, they're not just consuming our music or our movies abroad, right? We're consuming it locally. When I moved back in 2010, you could hardly, it was, it was almost like 70%, 30% of, of um, you know, international music and uh, to local music on the radio, right? You hear Beyonce at 50 Cent and, you know, sort of like Chris Brown, you know, before you hear sort of like local music. But today, I almost don't hear anything else yeah, that's international. Yeah, that's very true. So that's what's going to happen, right? The consumption would also drive, you know, um, the, the sustenance of, of the industry. Then, of course, the... I think the growth, the exponential growth, again, would, would, would be international. Uh, but just the baseline consumption um, within the country would, would, would drive the market. So in terms of where I see it, this is what I tell my friends, actually. This is how I'll, I'll put it. Ten years from now, Nollywood would be so big. 
10 years from now, you probably not even know that there was a Moabudu. And I don't mean this in a negative way, right? Because I think Mo would still be a force to reckon with 10 years from now. But I'm saying that if Mo stops today, you know, say she retires, says, oh, associated so much. I have deals with Sony. The Netflix people love me. You know, I have my own sort of theater. You know, I can now kick up my leg and, you know, and take a break. Nobody would know no Moabudu in 10 years. And that's just how big the market will be. Do you understand what I mean? Like yes. it would be so big that we we would have more Abudu. Who's that? You know, um, the same way that uh, <laughs> give me a joke. I will call the super ego's name, but you know, um, one of the older guys was talking to him about Celestine Babayaro, and was like, "Oh, Celestine, who's that? That's the current super ego's player." He didn't know who Celestine was. Oh, I said, really? Oh, yeah, I said, "Play for Chelsea." I said, "Uncle, I don't know who he is. I don't know who that is." They said, are you kidding me? The guy like, go check, <laughs> Bro, go check YouTube. <laughs> Celestine played for Chelsea. It was like the yeah. first Nigerian to play for Chelsea before. And he was like, before Mikel, way before Mikel. Yes. I was like, oh, I, I didn't know that, right? So that would be the case, you know, for Moabudu. If today she says she stops, you know, doing work. No one will know who she is in 10 years. And that's how big the market is. So I'm really optimistic. And I think that we're here to play for the long haul. We're not even thinking about our success in the short term, right? It's important that, it, you know, that we also have that in focus because, you know, that keeps the business alive. But it's the long-term play that we're thinking about when Nollywood, 10 years from now, can imagine. Um, so I think in terms of valuation, I don't have a number for what that valuation would look like in terms of Nollywood. I think a lot of Nollywood would also be driven by our music. I think the embrace of our music would also drive the embrace of our content and our stories. Uh, because it's just easy. Music is so easy. And I think that there'll be a lot of things that would also happen. I think sports would dramatically change, you know, um, from a management standpoint. You know, I still feel like our, our sports is very old school. It's still very government driven. Um, I, I think that in the next couple of years, there'll be uh, there'll be a huge infusion of private sector driven sort of like sports agenda. Um, and that'll be great for business. That'll be great for us. Um, and I just think that there's just so many more stories. I'll give you something that I'm thinking about that I'm playing with. Huge fan of the Dogen tribe, huge fan of Mansa Musa. We're currently working on uh, something that's fictional, but it's just based off the premise of the Dogen tribe believed, you know, so if you go read about the Dogen tribe, these guys were we're reading the stars way before there were any telescopes. <laughs> yes, 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 These guys were already stargazers way before, you know, as part of their tribe and their, you know, their tradition. Uh, you know, I encourage people to read about them. Very interesting um, story. As a matter of fact, there's a constellation I can't remember right now that was just uh, discovered, you know, a, couple, a few years ago, maybe about five years ago. Uh, French anthropologist, I can't remember the, the guy's name in particular, but we're saying that the Dogon tribe had been talking about this decades ago, right? Years ago. Based on that fascination, right? Dogon being Mali, Mansa Musa being of the you know, sort of Shung, uh, Shungai Empire. I have a very, <laughs> very, very <laughs> strange view that Mansa's wealth was actually, was a cover for something more. That, you know, the wealth is what we remember or what we think about, what we think about Mansa is what we think about. But it feels like Mansa maybe was, his rise um, to power and fame was was actually alien-induced, right? It's just random. 
random and based on that, right? Again, with the dog and tribe, bringing Manas and Musa together, we're exploring stories, you know, that would actually capitalize on that. And the reason why I just bring this up is there are stories that we need to tell that are real life stories, stories that we need to tell that are fictional. There are stories that we need to tell that teach. There's some that entertain. There's some that would lift us up. There's some that will inspire generations, you know, that are coming after us. There's some that will make us cry. As a Yoruba boy, um, I want stories about Biafra. I want to better understand some of the problems and the challenges that my evil brothers faced, right, during the Civil War. It's not talked about, right, especially in the Western part of Nigeria. It's not really talked about. You don't really know, you know, but you have a few evil friends and you're like, wow, was it that bad? I, I want people to tell me stories about things that I'm not conversant, that I'm blinded to. There was a shocking one that hit me recently. I never knew about the Dambe, the Dambe um, fighters until Israel Adesanya talked about it. Can you imagine, bro? Yes, yes. I just never knew. They, Israel was talking about, oh, Dambe, Dambe, Dambe. What's that? I Googled it. <laughs> I'm seeing YouTube videos over a million views. You know, traditional Hausa fighters. They've been fighting. I, I heard they've been doing this practice for about 400 years. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, someone tell me about the Dambi. Tell me a story about the Dambi fighters. You know, tell me a story about Biafra. As a Yoruba, I want to learn that more. You know, I think our Nigerian experience is incomplete without understanding that. Very true. Right? Tell me, tell me about sports. Tell me about JJ. Tell me about the real JJ. Right? Tell me about all these different things. Tell me about Kanu Wanko and all the amazing things that he's doing with his foundation, right? They've already done over 400, I think 450 heart surgeries, open heart surgeries for young kids who, who their parents could never afford. And I'm really mad at Kanu because we're not talking about this stuff. Right? I'm like, what is wrong with you? You know, and Kanu's like, well, it's there on our website. No, we need a film. <laughs> we need a story. You know, and he's so humble about all the stuff that he's doing, you know, Tell me about Celestine Babiaro. Tell me about Rashidi Yakin. Tell me about the late, great Teslim Tonda Balogo. You know, this guy <laughs> played. I, you know, I didn't even know that he played. Um, it was Wibe Boar that was just educating me on, you know, the amazing Wibe Boar, historian, extraordinary. You know, was just was just um, educating me on, 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 on some of the Nigerians that played in the Premier League, you know, then in the 50s. I said, I didn't even know that. I thought Amokachi was like one of the first in Neono. You know, um, so they're just stories for days, you know, they're stories for days. And I think it's our mission. You know, it must be our mission as a generation, you know, in whatever way, form or fashion, you know, that we tell those stories, whether we're in technology or we're in sports or we're in media, you know, or, you know, entrepreneurship, whatever it is, it's important. You know, we have a we have a duty to tell those stories. Amazing, amazing. To be honest, I don't think I could have put it any better in terms of where you see Africa in five years' time, giving us also a call to action in terms of telling our stories as Africans as well. That was fantastic. Thank you, Lannery. Thank you so much. Quote of the week. As people, we often have quotes, mantras, African proverbs, affirmations that keep us going when times are difficult or when times are even good. Do you have one you can share with us today? So there's one that I go by, and um, I was a huge fan of Les Brown. Oh, I love Les Brown. African-American growing up. He got me through tough times as a teenager, right? Where you're like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I want to do all these things, you know. 
And this was the quote. I don't know if the quote, I don't think the quote is his, but I, I got it from him in one of his, um, one of the tapes that I had back in the days. Um, it's um, go not where the path leads. And I think I sort of alluded to what we were talking earlier. I said, go not where the path leads, but go where there's no path and you leave a trail. You know, I've always had that. You know, my wife is like, why are you doing all this stuff? Like, it'd just be easy if you just go get a job on Facebook or Google. <laughs> you, know? you know, and I get it because, you know, we're, you know, we we sort of came up, you know, my wife worked at Accenture right now. She does, um, she does some work for WhatsApp and Facebook, you know, so we, we sort of grew up having that corporate mindset, you know, having a great job, you know, stock options, you know, living the life. So she's like, is this what you really want to do? And I'm like, we have to give it a try. The legacy that we're creating is not just one of, you know, you can provide everything that your children want, but it's it's one of, you can set the backdrop for people to follow. And I think, and it's important, you know, it's not just about creating wealth, that wealth is important, you know, but you can set the agenda, you can set the narrative that sparks a new generation, the thinking for a new generation. And you do that through business. I have been inspired, you know, by other people. I've been inspired by Sholakimade or Paystack and the amazing things that they're doing with that company. You know, I've been inspired by, by um, Mr. Ovioso or Paga Tech. I've been inspired by LeBron James, you know, and all that he's doing with Uninterrupted. You know, I'm inspired by, I'm inspired by a lot of people and, and you know, and, and their businesses. And I'm hoping that our, you know, that we can also be an inspiration, you know, to, to other people. And, and it, it would be hard, especially if it's new, if there's no blueprint, there's no blueprint to Atlas in Africa. Right. So it's going to be hard, but, you know, I believe that, you know, where there is, you know, where there's that, you know, where there's that gap, there is opportunity. Um, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. So again, you know, when I, when I, when I face the, the sort of like the tough times, I, I remember that quote, you know, and I heard it from Les Brown, you know, don't go where the path leads, but instead go where there's no path and you leave a trail. Amazing, amazing. I don't think there's a better way in terms of closing today's conversation. What you're doing is definitely inspiring. It's something that's different. It's unique. There aren't many people doing what it is that you're doing. It's inspiring me, to be perfectly honest. As we come to the end of this conversation, do you have any closing remarks, final course of action for people who are interested in exploring, I guess, African, Nigerian filmmaking, content creation? So first off, I think, you know, I want to say a huge thank you to you, you know, for doing what you're doing, oh, because you. you're also into storytelling. You're also into storytelling with the podcast. I listen to a few. I, I listen to Satoshi's. Satoshi himself and, and, and Kepo, they inspire us every day. They took a, a chance on us when a lot of people were not, you know, were thinking, wait, what are you doing? You know, are you a fintech business? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sports media. What's that? <laughs> right. You know, but Satoshi and, 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 the, and the team from Kepo were like, nah, this, you know, we got you. Go experiment, go explore. You know, so what you're doing also is very important. You're curating, you know, our minds, thank our you. experiences. Um, so I just want to say thank you for doing what you're doing. I thank you for having me. To the wider audience, there's no better time than now you know, to invest in Nigeria, to be a part of the story 
that is going on in Africa. And it's not just Nigeria. I just use Nigeria because I'm Nigerian. You know how we are. Very nice. <laughs> you know, but it's the same. The same movement is happening in Ghana. The same is happening in Kenya. You know, the same is happening in South Africa. And those are countries that I know. And, and I believe it's happening across Africa, right? There's a renaissance, there's a new generation that feels like, you know, they can take ownership of their future and their destiny, right? And they're all, you know, they all have this entrepreneurial mindset. You know, a lot of them don't care that much about the government, right? They're, they're done and dusted with the government. They're like, you know what? I want to create my own stuff. There's no water. I'm going to create my water, right? But there are no cars. We're going to build our cars. Oh, there's no food. We're going to do our food, right? Um, there's no better time than now, not only because of what you can potentially build as an individual, but the team of people that you get to meet, the network, the amazing young Africans who are doing extraordinarily well. And it reminds me, just being a history buff, it reminds me of the generation I call the, the 50s, the generation, 1950s generation, right? There were a bunch of people who had gone to school abroad, who had gone to the UK, the US to earn their degrees. And they all came back, the Nkrumahs, the Jomo Kenyatta's, the Obafemiawolos, right? Uh, the um, Inamdi Azikwe's, right? All these guys were like, oh, we have a country to build. And, and that's what it feels like in this generation. And, you know, so my message is, yes, you might hear a lot of stories about about insecurity and, you know, and all those different things that are happening. But you have to put it in context. Like, we're barely just 20 years through consistent democracy. Do you understand? 20 years ago, we're just trying to free ourselves from the military, right? We have a long way to go, right, when it comes to our democracy, when it comes to governance. But we would together figure it out. And we have to be here. We can't do it remotely. It's not going to work. Right, we have to be here, having to sit at the table and figuring out what the future of, of the country, you know, would sort of look like. We have to be here, and uh, and there's no better generation that has embraced democratic values as well as entrepreneurship. I think the generation of the '50s did it through governance, right? They came back and they wanted to be presidents and governors and all that, and that was good. That helped us build our, you know, our infrastructure. But now I think it's one of entrepreneurship. We have to embrace the private sector. We have to embrace business as a tool for change. Um, so that's what I would say. Fantastic. There's no better time. I, I know, Tessa, you're feeling like, oh, my God, Larry just, Larry just said, I have to be here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm here and there. Let me correct that. Like, Tessa, you're fine. We don't, we, don't, we don't need you to move back immediately, but you're connected. Right. That's why you're doing this podcast. You're connected. You know, you have your ears are on the ground. You understand what's going on in the space. You know, you're connecting to people like myself. You're connecting to businesses. Uh, you're connecting to chain makers. And I think that that's important. Uh, so I hope that helps. I hope that inspires somebody. But I have been inspired by just talking to you. Thank you so much. What a fantastic way to close today's conversation that has been inspiring, informative, educational and extremely enjoyable conversation. So thank you, Lanry. Thank you for taking thank the you. time out. I think we could have talked all day if if we could. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I enjoyed that extremely. So yeah, thank you and look forward to speaking again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care and we will speak soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Tessa. Bye now. Thank you to everyone who has listened and stayed tuned to the podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share, or tell a friend about it. You can also rate review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast. Thank you and see you next week for the Unlocking Africa podcast. <laughs>